when Dorothy set out to Emerald City, there was a, a phrase that kept coming up. She kept getting instructions to follow the yellow brick road over and over again. So that eventually it became a song. If I started singing some of it, you could follow, you could follow along, right? Follow the yellow brick road. And it goes on and on and on. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Uh, he, and I looked up the lyrics. I didn't realize all the lyrics. It's because he is a, a wonderful wizard of Oz. He, if there ever there was a whiz, it, it's this one. Why? Because of the wonderful things that he does. Dorothy sets off to the Wizard of Oz in Emerald City because she needs to get back home. And you know the story. She meets the scarecrow who needs a brain and the tin man who needs a heart and the lion who needs courage. And they go on this perilous journey. Uh, This wicked witch is constantly trying to get them and take away their dog and pull out the stuffing of the, the scarecrow. This perilous journey to Emerald City and they finally arrive And they come to the doors, and the guard says, The wizard? You want to see the wizard? No one sees the wizard. Not even I've seen the wizard. The door was shut to them, and all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all of their needs that they were hoping to be met, all of this was destroyed, shattered. They were without hope. And we find ourselves in a similar situation when it comes to access to God, the creator of all things. The door of God has been shut to humanity because of our sin and our rebellion. Everything we need is found in him. Everything you need is found in him. And yet because of our rebellion, the the door of heaven has been shut to us. We come to this place where we find our need in him and yet we cannot approach him. In fact, it is said in the Old Testament, by God himself, no one can see my face and live. That's because for a sinful man or a sinful woman, a sinful person to stand before the holy creator of the universe would be for him to be completely destroyed. God cannot stand for sin to be in his presence. So this is what we need. This is what you need. You need access to God Almighty. You need to see His glory. You need Him to be revealed to you. You need the door to be opened to you. And that is exactly what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. We just saw in the previous verse, Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened to you. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus has opened up heaven for us. Opened up access to God for us where we had none before. And maybe in your thinking, well, the illustration doesn't quite fit, does it? Because the the way the scripture puts it, we were not on a, a perilous journey looking for God when he revealed himself to us. Right? We were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were in the midst of our rebellion to God when he revealed himself to us. If, you could, if the hand of your spiritual body could have been lifted, it would have dropped down to the ground like a thud. Because you were dead. You weren't looking for God. 
And yet in His grace, He has condescended to us in Jesus who became flesh, truly God and truly man, and He has revealed to us who God is. That's what John says at the end of his prologue when he says, this one who is at the chest of the Father, He has explained God. He has revealed Him to us. This is then what we need for all of our needs to be met. This is what you need more than anything else in this world to see God in His glory, to be reconciled to Him, to have access to Him. And Jesus reveals to us the glory of God. In our passage for this morning, Jesus reveals His glory in a limited sense, in a partial sense, to His disciples. They see His glory and they put their trust in Him. Jesus reveals His glory. To see His glory is to be changed. To see the glory of Jesus is to be changed and to trust in Him. We've already seen that this revealing of God is an important theme throughout the beginning of John. That Jesus has explained God. John the Baptist came so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. So that he might be seen for who he is. The Messiah, the one who has come. And now, for the first time, Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples so that they will be prepared to trust in him throughout their journeys. So this, theme, this text is all about the re- revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ in this moment, in this miracle of turning water into wine. And so as we, as we look at this passage, we'll walk through it section by section. It's like any good story. It has a, a, pro, a, a situation, the wedding at Cana, it has a problem. It has a proposed solution, and then it has a, a resolution after the climax of the story. So we'll walk through this each step of the way thinking about what does this reveal about the glory of Jesus Christ? What does this reveal about who he is? about who it is we are placing our faith in so that we might have life and life abundantly. First, I want you to see that this glory of Jesus that he reveals is cross-centered. We don't see the word cross anywhere in this text, but I hope to show you what I mean. It is cross-centered. In other words, this glory that Jesus revealed in this circumstance in this miracle is looking forward to something else it's looking forward to a greater revelation of his glory which is in his suffering and in his death the author tells us the situation it was a wedding at cana in galilee the mother of jesus was there jesus was also invited and his disciples were were there with him that's the situation and we come quickly to the problem there was no wine left the wine ran out. And you, you always know when you're hosting a party or a gathering, you want to have more food. You want to have more food than you need than not enough. It would be an embarrassment. It would be bad to send guests away with, with nothing left to eat. And these festivities, these weddings would have been huge affairs taking place over multiple days. This, this is no ordinary This wedding and reception, this is a feast over several days where people are rejoicing and enjoying this time together. They they run out of wine and the mother of Jesus has a proposed solution. She turns to Jesus and tells him they have 
no wine. Those words in themselves don't signal to us that Mary wants Jesus to do anything, but Jesus' response shows us Mary's intention. In other words, Mary's saying to Jesus, you've got to do something about this, that they're out of wine. You see his response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And we might step back a moment at this, these words that Jesus uses to his mother and, and say, was that entirely impro- appropriate? Was Jesus right in saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? I know if, if I said that to you, women, you probably wouldn't receive that too well, would you? And yet at the time, this word that Jesus is speaking to Mary wouldn't have come across in that way at all. It was a a respectful way of addressing his mother. There would have been nothing odd about this. This is not a rebuke when Jesus calls her a woman. However, the rest of the words that he says does seem to be a mild rebuke. What does this have to do with me? Imagine you being at a party and they run out of food or they run out of drink. And someone turns to you and says, what are you going to do about this? You'd say the same thing. What what does that have to do with me? I'm not the one responsible here. And yet Mary is exhibiting a sort of faith, something we could commend in her, that she knows Jesus, if anybody, Jesus can actually do something about this situation. He can do something about the fact that they have run out of wine. But he says, what does this have to do with me? And particularly, we see even more what he's, why he's re- resisting this. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. We see this resistance from Jesus to get involved in this situation. It has nothing to do with him. And further, my hour has not yet come. We'll get to that in a second. But I want you to notice two things about this, this beginning of this situation. First, notice Mary's, what I commended her for, this sort of faith in Jesus, and yet it is an uninformed faith. It's kind of an ignorant sort of faith. She knows that Jesus can do something about it, but she is not thinking in terms of the things of God. Rather, she's thinking in terms of her own felt needs. She wants Jesus to fix the problem that this wedding has this fix this problem where there is no more wine and consider how often do we come to jesus in a similar way we come to him because we know he can fix our problems we know if we have any situation ultimately god he is god right and he can fix what is broken in our world so we might think of our felt needs things like I really wish I could have a more fulfilling career. I really wish I could have a more fulfilling relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. I wish he could fix this bad habit that I have. We, we think about these problems, these somewhat superficial problems that we have, and we know Jesus can fix them, and so we go to him, wanting him to fix our needs. It it, it is a sort of faith, right? But it is an uninformed faith. It is a faith which thinks about these superficial issues that we have when Jesus wants to reframe our needs. He wants to reorient us to that which is truly needful for us. You see, when 
when we go to Jesus for those sorts of felt needs, we might, without realizing it, we might be actually using Jesus as a means to another end. We're using Jesus, in other words, as a tool to get that which we really want. We, we want the fulfilling career. We want the fulfilling marriage. We want the fulfilling life. When in actuality, what we need is Jesus himself. Not him as a tool to get that which we need. He is what we need. And so this is what I think Mary is doing here. She doesn't quite see him as something more than her son who can take care of these issues. She doesn't quite realize what it means that Jesus is the Messiah of the world and her Messiah as well. So notice Mary's uninformed faith, but notice also this anticipatory nature of this glory that he's revealing. In other words, the glory that Jesus is revealing here is looking forward to something else. It's anticipating a, a greater glory. And we see that when he says, my hour has not yet come. This is where Jesus is reframing the needs that Mary is thinking about. He's, he's reframing what it is that we really need. What we really need is what his hour is going to take care of. Well, what is his hour? Throughout the Gospel of John, the word hour is used in many different ways. Sometimes it's just used in reference to time. The sixth hour, the fourth hour, something like that. But at other times, it's used in such a way to be pointing forward to a new age. So he might say, the hour is coming where you won't worship on this mountain or in the temple. The hour is coming when this will happen. But in even a different sense, in a more narrow sense, it's referring to Jesus' hour, my hour, his hour. And so in chapter 7 and 8, it's referred to Jesus, people wanting to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't lay their hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Or a little bit later in John 12, 27, Jesus' soul becomes troubled within him, and he says, what shall I do? Ask the Father to release me from this hour? He says, it was for this hour that is coming. That's my purpose. That's why I've come, this hour which is yet to come. And then even further on, we see it in, in John 13, 1, and then also in John 17, 1, in which Jesus says to the Father, my hour has come. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you. And he's speaking of himself being lifted up. He's speaking of his suffering and death. In fact, immediately after chapter 17, he is arrested and his suffering begins. When Jesus points to his hour, he is speaking of his suffering and death on the cross for sinners like you and me. You see, this dwarfs any other need that you may think that you have. Your need to be in right relationship with the Father. This is why Jesus came. Not to simply fix your problems, but to fix the problem, to raise you from the dead, to forgive you of your sins, to bring you into right relationship with the Father. See, this reorients us in our thinking about what it is that we truly need. Because then you begin to understand, well, first, what I truly need is to be forgiven of my sins. 
And oh, how great my sins are. But then next, what you, need, what you begin to think is, well, maybe what I need is not so much to be fulfilled in my career, in my job, but to figure out how then has this changed me so that I might love my neighbors in my career. It changes your mindset from thinking, how can I be more fulfilled in my marriage to how can I love my wife like Christ has loved me and forgiven me? See how it reorients your needs, what you recognize your need is? But there are all kinds of people around you who are, are seeking God, who are seeking Jesus, just to fulfill these temporal needs, this, these things really which it becomes about yourself, right? But the gospel reorients our needs so that we see with desperation what it is we really are in need of. In another month or so, I think I have a dentist appointment coming up. Don't you all all look forward to dentist appointments? And unfortunately, I love coffee more than I love white teeth. (laughs) But when I go to the dentist, they they clean them, they polish them up real nice, and I don't get them whitened, but it does give me closer to the pearly whites than, than... without the cleaning. So I look forward to those times. It just feels so good, feels so fresh. But what if I went to the dentist and they found a problem with, in the x-rays? They said, there is something desperately wrong here. You, you're going to need to have surgery right away to take care of this, this problem. And I, I say, I don't really feel any problem. I feel fine. My, I just want you to, can you just polish my teeth for me? Can you just whiten my teeth for me? That's all I really came here for. That's all I really want. Can you just do that for me? And don't we do the same thing when we look to Jesus just to fix these temporal needs? When really what we need is to continually be filled by his spirit that we might bear fruit of his spirit, that we might walk in his likeness, reflecting his glory that he has given us in the Holy Spirit. Don't settle. Don't settle for having Jesus meet just these simple, temporal, superficial needs. And I'm not saying these things aren't important, right? It is bad to have bad habits that you need to get better. We do want to have a more fulfilling marriage, a more fulfilling career, a more fulfilled life. And yet these things only ultimately come as you're not looking for those things, but you find your your joy in Jesus Christ. These things flow out of having your satisfaction in Jesus, not in these things. Jesus is the focus. He is our need. So it is a, it is a cross-centered glory that Jesus reveals here as he points Mary forward to this hour which will come, this purpose for why he has come. Notice second about this glory that Jesus reveals, it is eschatological. That's a big word, I know. Eschatological simply refers to end times. This, this end times to which all of history is moving. Eschatological. So we could say it points, this glory that he's revealed points forward to the cross, but it also points backward to the prophetic witness of Scripture. Mary pushes forward In her plan, uh, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? And Mary says, y'all do whatever he says. (laughs) She knows he can do something about it. It, 
but in one sense, it's not Mary directed. It is Jesus directed. She has put it in his court. If he says, don't do anything, they won't do anything. She says, do whatever he says. There are six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is a lot of wine. Well, we haven't got there yet, have we? But Jesus said to his, the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the very brim, up to the top, he specifies. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the, wa- the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Now he parenthetically tells us that the servants who drew the water, they knew where it came from. This was a real miracle. It was water in the jars. It wasn't wine to begin with. It wasn't some sleight of hand, some magic trick where Jesus snuck in all this wine out of nowhere. This really took place. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, and also throughout this this story, we should take note that the verbs are all in the the active uh, tense. And so it says, the master of the feast called, calls the bridegroom and he says to him, he shouts this to him, he speaks this to him. He's, he's bringing us into the story as if, as if it's happening right now. Everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The good stuff and lots of it. If you, I did the calculations and it would equal about 1,600, 1,650 cans of 12-ounce beer or about 600 to 900 bottles of wine. That is a lot of wine. Now, it would have been a huge gathering, I would think, so that it wouldn't be 20 people drinking all this wine. It would have been a huge festive gathering, but still, just think about the, the sheer quantity of the wine that Jesus made here from this water, on top of that which they had already had for the celebration. Jesus decides to use this opportunity for his own glory. He, in some way, has, has made a, a, a decision, at first resistance, but then probably, I'm speculating, in communication with the Father, uses this opportunity to reveal his glory. And there are several things going on here in this passage which are below the surface. Things we might not notice if we're just reading a story about a miracle that Jesus did. John has already been talking about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He has all of these instances where he's pointing back to the Old Testament, back to the prophecies of the Old Testament, which speak of this one who would come And set everything right. This one who would come and save his people from his sins. This one who would come and be a blessing to all peoples. Well, I think what John is doing here in the telling of the story is intentionally doing some of those same same things. Bringing up some of those same themes. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophetic witness, well, the view of the Old Testament in general is that wine is generally a good thing. There are certainly warnings of drunkenness and how wine can bite and how it can destroy one's life. 
But overall, it is a picture of blessing and goodness and enjoying the abundance of God. But even more particular than that, it is a prophetic witness that the abundance of wine and grain and all good things will come with the Messiah. There are prophetic witnesses which speak of the coming of the Lord. Let's look at a couple of them together. Joel 3, 18 is one of them. Turn there in your Bible. Scroll there in your Bible. Joel 3, 18. And in that day, he's speaking of that day in the future which is to come when the Lord will come. In that day, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Mountains dripping with wine. Rolling down the mountains. And then turn over a few pages to Amos chapter 9, 13 and 14. Amos 9, 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming. Again, this future time declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. This is an abundance of wine, an abundance of blessing. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And then turn back in your Bible to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. In other words, a new age has dawned with the coming of Jesus. A new age has dawned with the coming of of the Messiah. I wonder what it would have been like in 1776 when America declared independence from England. I wonder as the word spread about the joy that people had in their newfound freedom, imagine how different It would have felt a new age has come. We are no longer subjected to the powers of England. We are free. We are declaring independence. Can you imagine the joy that would have come from that? Maybe scenes after World War I or World War II 
would give us the same picture of this, this joy that comes with this new age which has dawned. And yet, as we think about American independence, we have to recognize, too, that it wouldn't have been that way for everybody. Think about the Trail of Tears in the 1800s as Native Americans were driven from their land. And you think about African Americans. Think about Africans who were traded into slavery. Who wouldn't have felt necessarily all that much joy. Maybe they had been freed from England, but they were still slaves to white men. And yet what we have here is something that dwarfs any kind of freedom and joy that we would ever find in this earth. With the coming of the Messiah, there is freedom and abundance of joy. Isaiah says, not just for a particular set of people, but for all people, for all nations. And with the abundance of wine seen here, with the abundance of wine seen from flowing from the mountains, there is enough joy for everybody. This is what we see in the future as well as John writes the revelation of Jesus Christ to him at the end of the Bible when he talks about the marriage of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb has come. And we see throughout Revelation, this will be a feast for all people of all tongues, of all languages, of all tribes, of all cultures. This is the kind of age that Jesus brings. It is a new kind of kingdom. Not like any kingdom of this world. It will be a kingdom for all people who come to God through Jesus Christ, through this Messiah. He brings a new joy, one that dwarfs any joy that we can find in this world. He brings new blessing. A new age has dawned with the coming of the Messiah. And John makes it clear, too, that it's related. Notice how he describes the vessels which are used in this miracle. There are stone jars which wouldn't be subject to corruption or defilement. And they were used for the Jewish purification rites. He is intentionally drawing out these details for us to give us a theological message. I don't think John is simply reporting what he saw, although he's doing that. He wants to give us a theological message. The age of the shadows of the Messiah has passed. The age of washing for ceremonial cleanness has passed. The age of all these shadows and types of the one who has to come has passed, and it is found in this one person, Jesus Christ. You will find true cleansing only in the wine of Jesus, the wine of his blood poured out for sinners. You will find true blessing only in him, the one in whom all nations are blessed. You will find true joy only in him, not in these things that you're pursuing throughout this world. Why why would you go back to those things and find your joy in these temporal, superficial things when ultimate joy is to be found in Jesus Christ? So what do we do with this, this fact, the fact that a new age has dawned where you live in light of it? 
You live in light of the fact that you are now a kingdom of heaven. You're not merely a kingdom of, Amer- a, a citizen of the kingdom of America or of this world. What would it look for you to live like a new age has dawned? Are, are you living in light of that? Are you living with the blessing of the new age? Living with the joy of the new age? And I don't mean in these things that, that you are materially blessed in all these ways, but that you have found your joy in Jesus, in this one. A new age has dawned, brothers and sisters. Jesus, in revealing his glory here, is points towards the cross. It's cross-centered, and it's also eschatological. We are in the end times. We are in the, the messianic age. And we also see in this miracle that it is a purposeful revealing of his glory. He, he has a reason for it. It's, it's not simply that the people would be amazed. Wow, he turned water into wine. Amazing. He has a particular purpose for it. And we see this in the author's words here in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is what John calls his first sign, which makes the the reader think, well, there will be more. This is just the first. There are going to be a lot more signs. In fact, as I've mentioned before, chapters 2 through 12 are often called the book of signs because of how many times the word signs are used and how many signs Jesus does to reveal his glory. And in each of those cases, these signs point to something beyond the work. Particularly, they point to the identity of Jesus. Who is he? How can can he be someone who does signs such as these? Can he really be the Messiah with, with these signs? Certainly he must be. All of his signs are wrapped up in his person, in his identity, who he is. And people come to him and they either believe in him or they reject him. When it comes to signs throughout the book of signs, chapters 2 through 12, notice that as you read through it. It has to do with his identity. It has to do with belief. It has to do with unbelief. And it has to do with a division that is created between those who believe and those who continue in unbelief. It also makes us think the fact that this is his first sign. Well, what will be his last sign? And if you peek ahead into the next chapter, we get a glimpse at that as well. Not only does this point forward to his death, it points to his resurrection from the dead. That he is a living Savior. He is a living Messiah. He revealed his glory... And it resulted in his disciples believing in him. And the author makes a note at the end of the book of John. You're probably well aware of this in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, that Jesus did many other signs. And if if you were to write all those down, well, there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to contain what Jesus did. But these were written so that you might believe and have life in his name. It it corresponds back to what he's saying here. Jesus performs a sign, reveals his glory, and his disciples believe in him. 
So we've asked in our prayer this morning that Jesus would reveal his glory to us in the preaching of his word. That we would see his glory and that he would give us faith to believe. And those that's our has to do with what, what we do with this. What are our options? Having seen the glory of Christ, having seen his glory revealed in this miracle and in the preaching of his word, what are our options and how we ought to respond to this word? Well, we have probably more than this, but I'll point out three options that we have. One is to continue in unbelief. Unbelief at who Jesus is, unbelief at who he says he is, unbelief at the promises he has made to you in the gospel. You can continue to reject him. I think everybody here except for the children have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but I wouldn't want to presume that. I want to plead with you, children and adults, do not continue to reject Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself to you. Children, teens, as he has revealed himself to you in your family, bringing you to church, in your family trying to teach you the scriptures day in and day out, do not reject this. Do not think it's just for the adults. He's calling to you here and now to receive him and to believe him, to put your faith in him. Do not continue in unbelief. One option is unbelief. One option is to Believe in a selfish, superficial sort of way. In other words, as we'd mentioned before, to believe in him as one who will fix my problems. As a means to an end, as a tool to get done what I want. You can believe him in that way as well, and it will not avail you. But the third option is to trust in him, to believe in him. I say trust in because that conveys this sense of reliance upon, right? You can believe the facts of the gospel, the facts of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. You can affirm that. You can say, yes, he died on the cross for sinners. You can say, yes, I believe that he rose from the dead. And yet to simply believe those facts, there's a, there's a distance between you and him still, right? You haven't actually trusted in him yet. You're just believing facts, Is that where your faith has stopped? I wouldn't doubt that there are many people in churches throughout America where that's where their faith has stopped and they think that they're good. And they think that's what brings them into a relationship with God, believing facts about the gospel. About seven years ago, eight years ago, Isaiah was just this little guy. It's hard for you to believe, isn't it? My son was about just this big. And some friends had invite, invited us to the lake to spend some time on their houseboat. Houseboat. I always get that wrong. Is that right? Houseboat. I think that's right. And it was, it's a big houseboat. It was beautiful. It's got multiple rooms inside. It has an upper deck where you can walk up and enjoy the scenery. And on top of this upper deck, it had uh, a big slide, which launches you down into the water. You know, you're maybe 15 feet up or more, 20 feet up. And it launches you down in the water. And Isaiah was afraid. He wanted to do it, but he did not want to do it. (laughs) And I remember sitting there in the slide and trying to convince him to come along with me. To come along with me. Get in my lap. I'll protect you. I'll keep you safe. We'll do it together. Just just come on and I'll, I'll carry you down. And he wasn't entirely comfortable with that idea, believe it or not. He knew I was strong enough to to keep him 
from being harmed. He, he knew that I loved him, that I wouldn't let any, anything happen to him. If, I, if at all possible, I could help it. And yet there was something holding him back from getting in my lap. He trusted me, but he didn't, he didn't really trust me until he got in my lap. And in that moment, he entrusted himself to me. He said, even though he wasn't entirely comfortable with it, he said, I'm going to entrust myself to you. I'm trusting you. And we went down the slide, launched down into the water, and I, I lifted my hands as hard as I could to keep him out of the water. He went down a little bit, but he came back up, and he enjoyed it. He, he trusted me, and I made good. I'm, I'm so thankful I made good <laughs> on that trust. Well, to, to trust in Jesus is not simply to be, believe facts, but to entrust yourself to him. You might not even be entirely comfortable with that idea and what that all entails. But it means despite your hesitancy, despite the weakness maybe of your own faith, you entrust yourself to him. You entrust yourself to his care. Saving faith is not dependent on the strength of your own faith, but the strength of the one who holds you. It is dependent upon Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. And you might say, well, I've already, I've already put my trust in him. I did that in 1996. I marked that off of uh, the list and I put my trust in him. And yet, there's a very real sense in which this requires a daily trust in Jesus, a daily reliance upon him to follow him, to entrust yourself to his care, to, to not depend on your own abilities, on your own strength, but to place your faith completely in Him. And what would it look like for you to do that daily? To entrust yourself to His care. To know that you are not your own, but to know that you belong to Him. And unlike me, there's no doubt about the strength of Jesus to keep you. You don't have to wonder, will He hold you up? You don't have to wonder, will He, will he have enough to give me joy? Will He have enough to give me forgiveness? Will he have enough to save me? Jesus is enough. He will save you. So I, I want to end not with the focus on your own faith, but on Jesus' ability to save you, his power to save. No one can snatch them out of his hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of the hand of the Father. Entrust yourself to him, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together.